Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) He's already laughing. (laughs) This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Okay, so today is the big day. I've been in Dharamsala for over a week, and it is finally time for my sit-down with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I have flown across the world for this one-hour audience, so the stakes feel pretty high. I will admit, I'm a little nervous. His Holiness can be a bit of a tough nut to crack. On the one hand, he can sometimes fall back on his talking points instead of answering your questions directly. On the other hand, he's also been known to spontaneously feed people cake or tickle them, so I have no idea what I'm gonna get here. Good morning. Hello, Your Holiness. Good morning. Good morning. We're set up in a small wood-paneled room. The Dalai Lama walks in slowly, attended by large monks, guiding him on either side because of his bum knee. I'm standing next to Richie Davidson, who you've already met, the path-breaking scientist and longtime collaborator of the Dalai Lama's. I've actually known for a long time that Richie and His Holiness were close, But now I'm getting a sense of how close. As he's getting settled into his seat, His Holiness gives Richie a sort of compassionate headbutt. (laughs) A few minutes later, we settle in and it's on. The interview gets rolling and it is remarkable. Over the course of a single hour, we cover a ton of ground from a frank discussion of whether His Holiness ever gets angry to comments about his own reincarnation that he's apparently never made in public before to a kind of magical mystery tour of his own meditation practice, which left me both intrigued and confused. The conversation is fascinating, funny, rangy, and unpredictable. I honestly didn't catch all of it in real time. So we're going to devote the next three episodes to unpacking the thing, and we've recruited a superstar. After we got back stateside, I called up Richie to walk me through the choicest clips from my conversation with His Holiness. As you will hear, Richie's going to explain not only what the Dalai Lama is saying, but also how you can operationalize His Holiness's wisdom into your real life right now. You can think of it like uh, watching a movie with the director's commentary. The later episodes in the series, episodes four and five, are going to get uh, way weirder. But in today's episode, we're going to focus on the super practical stuff. We'll cover some big questions. How do you deal with assholes? What does the Dalai Lama mean when he talks about the very intriguing notion of wise selfishness? And like any good DVD extra, we're going to give you some incredible behind-the-scenes stories from Richie like the time he saw the Dalai Lama get angry at him, in fact. And His Holiness grabbed me by the arm, and he, in a very angry way, he said, don't use my, just like that. We'll get started right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. 
Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Hi, Richie. Hey, Dan. Great to see you. Likewise. All right. So let's dive right in here, as you know, because you were right there with me when we sat down for that interview with his holiness, the Dalai Lama, even before I asked a question, he launched into a a whole riff about how warm heartedness or altruism or compassion is the ultimate source of happiness, inner peace and inner strength. And it was an argument that was very familiar. You and I had both heard him say these words many, many times during the Compassionate Leaders Summit. And it brought up a question for me about whether he, his holiness, can really sustain this kind of warm-heartedness all of the time. So I put it to him directly. Here's the clip. Do you ever lose your sense of warm-heartedness or your altruistic intent? Do you ever find yourself feeling angry or selfish? Anger? Almost none. Almost none. Here his holiness makes a reference to the one exception, mosquitoes. Except during nice sleep, mosquito come. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, anger almost not come. Kidding aside, he does go on to say that he doesn't even get angry in the face of the decades-long conflict with China. To the Chinese, they really suppress us and destroy Tibetan culture. But... I feel more sympathy, no anger, more sense of concern or how bad they're thinking, very short-sighted and too much selfish. Okay, so Richie, have you ever seen His Holiness angry? I've seen His Holiness angry on two occasions. And in both occasions, 
I clearly saw that his anger was in the service of an altruistic motivation. And I think it's best if I just talked about one of them because it was directed at me. So I feel like I have the privilege of revealing this. That's a story I don't share very often, but since you've asked, I will share it. We used to have small meetings with His Holiness in the U.S., where we brought a very small group of scientists who were studying meditation together with him so that he could be updated on the latest research that was going on. And one year, it was decided that rather than have old folks like myself present to His Holiness, we would have young people who are postdocs and young graduate students who are at the early stages of their career and who are really committed to this kind of research present their work. And I was asked to moderate this. And one of the young people was someone who was a former graduate student of mine, and she was a great student and has done some really important research on compassion. So when it came time for me to introduce her, I said that this is my student and she worked in my lab and went on about this. And His Holiness grabbed me by the arm and he, in a very angry way, he said, don't use my, just like that. And it was a shock to my system and a wake-up call. And then he started laughing. And it was a deep, deep teaching, which I will never forget and affected me in a cellular way. And it lasted like a millisecond, but I clearly saw a flash of anger that was in the service of being compassionate to me and helping me understand my own self-involvement in this case. That's an incredible story, and we all need, I mean, just so you don't feel picked on here, we all need to be <laughs> jarred out of self-involvement, uh, some of us more than others. But let's just go back to anger for a second, because most of us do get angry and not in a helpful way and quite frequently. So should we feel badly about ourselves because of that? And what does your research show about how best to manage this anger? Absolutely not. I don't think we should feel bad about ourselves. The research shows that the practice of simple mindfulness and compassion meditation practices can be enormously helpful in not so much changing our anger initially or suppressing it or controlling it, but becoming aware of it. Sometimes people are really unaware that they're angry. And many of us, I think, have experienced that, where someone raises her or his voice in a certain context, and they're not really aware that they're doing it. And so mindfulness can really help a person be aware of it, and having insight into it can help us understand what the causes of the anger might be and help us change our relationship to the anger so that we're not completely fused with the anger. You know, we often use expressions when we talk about our own emotions. We say, I am angry, or I'm sad, or I'm depressed. And we can ask ourselves, really? Is it all of us that is feeling anger? Every cell in your body is angry? I mean, what does it actually mean to say, I am angry? What does that mean? And then we can 
really start to penetrate what this I is that is angry, and that helps to give us some distance from it. And over time, gradually, step by step, it begins to dissipate more easily. A hundred percent. This shows up in the research and it shows up in my own end of one laboratory, having meditated for a while now that you can surf your anger instead of drowning in it. And that applies to all sorts of difficult emotions. However, the sort of next level of difficulty is when you're dealing with a truly difficult person or people. And I wanted to get some practicality on that from the Dalai Lama. So I I asked him about it specifically since he had referenced the Chinese. So let's listen to that. You mentioned that you're able to feel compassionate for the Chinese who invaded your country and put you into exile. How can regular people who are not monks feel compassion for difficult people? I think basically human nature, warm-heartedness, because we are social animals. If we kept warm-heartedness, then I think there should not happen First World War, Second World War, because, you see, genuine sense of brotherhood, sisterhood. And here, I always emphasize sense of oneness of seven or eight billion human beings. We are actually brothers, sisters. We have to live together on this planet. So I remember being a little frustrated with that answer because I was hoping to get some practical advice, maybe even some meditation advice about how to deal with difficult people. And I heard him sort of go back to his talking points about oneness and brotherhood and social animals and seven to eight billion human beings. Why do you think the Dalai Lama is so repetitive? Is it possible that age is a contributor? I think he's repetitive because as he is nearing the later stages of his life, he's focusing on those things that he considers to be most important and really has less interest in things that are more peripheral to these really key issues. And I've known him now for uh, 40 years, I think. And I've never seen him give, at least in a public context for Westerners, practical meditation instructions. You know, he teaches from the insights that he gets from his own practice. And in the Tibetan tradition, it's the case that there are simple pointers that are given by a teacher, and then you go off and practice. You don't get kind of handheld all the way you got to just do it and sort of discover it. And so I think he's at least in part reflecting that as well. When we were together as part of that visit to Dharamsala, I was with him for about three and a half weeks and saw him many times over the course of this period. And I would say that His Holiness is living mostly in a non-conceptual world these days because he spends so much time by himself not interacting with others. And then when he is with others, he's really focusing on the things that matter the most, which are these points that he keeps coming back to. What do you mean by non-conceptual? For His Holiness, 
compassion is not a concept. It is a, a lived experience so that when he sees you and when he sees me, he's actually seeing us as brothers. I mean, literally. And it's not just a phrase. It's not just a way of speaking. It's a deeply embodied perceptual stance toward the universe. But that is the result of decades, and maybe if you believe in reincarnation, lifetimes of practice. You know, you, you say he teaches from the insights and doesn't do a lot of hand-holding, but I think the rest of us, at least in the West, do need some hand-holding. So I wonder if you could give us some and talk about what you've learned from your research and your practice about what we can do to develop compassion for difficult people. Yeah, so I, I really appreciate that question and also believe it's a super important question. And it's probably much easier for people to do that by starting with people who are not the most difficult people, people who are just sort of a little bit annoying, if you will, not the most problematic person in one's life. And it's something that can be gradually approached step by step. So there are a few things that the research has shown first. I'll speak about the research, and then I'll speak about my own experience. One of the things that the research shows is that there are real behavioral consequences that are measurable when a person does this. And just to give you one example from our own research, and this is research with very young children who were taught these kinds of practices starting in preschool. We had photographs of every kid in the class, and we asked the kids to pick out their favorite friend in the class, you know, and they picked out from the photograph, and we asked the kids to pick out their least favorite person in the class. And then after they went through these practices, we gave them a bunch of stickers, which is a very important currency for a four-year-old. <laughs> and we asked the kids to distribute the stickers in envelopes according to how they wished to distribute them. And we had one envelope where there was a picture of themselves and another envelope that had a picture of their least favorite person in the class. And it turns out that kids actually distribute significantly more stickers to their least favorite friend in the class after going through this simple kindness training where they are taught to reflect on the feelings of another person, take the perspective of another person, and to appreciate that a kid may do something that may be annoying to you, but they don't necessarily mean to hurt you by it. It's a byproduct of what they're doing. And so those kinds of lessons have these really important behavioral consequences. In my own life as a practitioner, you know, I do these kinds of practices as part of my daily practice. And then when I know I'm going to have to be with a person who is difficult in one way or another, I specifically bring them into my mind and my heart. I try to appreciate the fact that they don't mean to be difficult. It's just a product of their upbringing, their as they say in the Buddhist tradition, causes and conditions. 
but they have the same wish to be happy that I do. You know, I don't, I haven't measured it, but I, I have certainly over the long course of my career, I've become, you know, much less angry myself, much less volatile, and much less perturbed by difficult people. Yes, me too. And just to put a fine point on it, there are these practices where you can train up your compassion muscle. You can find them on the Healthy Minds app or the 10% Happier app or many other meditation apps. And the research that Richie and others have done shows that these practices have physiological, psychological, and even behavioral benefits that can really help you deal with difficult people. That does lead to the question of why? You know, what's in it for me? Why do I need to be nice to these meanies? And I actually get to that in this next clip with the Dalai Lama, where I ask him about one of my favorite of his concepts. What is wise selfishness? Thinking more compassionate way to other is best way to fulfill your own interest. Now, for example, my own sort of practice, always think other uh, result, I get benefit. Here, His Holiness sticks his <laughs> tongue out at me. <laughs> so, although not motivated, selfish, but it actually happened that way, helping other sincerely, uh, then you get maximum benefit. So is there science to back up this self-interested case he's making for not being a jerk? Absolutely. I mean, the the clearest is a, a sort of prototype experiment that is part of a whole cottage industry of research that has the following characteristic. You can bring a group of people into the laboratory in the morning, assess their level of happiness. You then give them money, real cash. You tell them, please go spend the money on yourself. Everyone has things they wanted to buy themselves, but they can't really justify it. Here's $100, go buy yourself some gifts. The only requirement is that you cannot spend the money on anybody else. You just need to buy stuff for yourself. Another group comes into the lab in the morning, same thing. They are given the $100 and they say, please go buy gifts for other people today. The only constraint is you can't spend a penny on yourself. Just go buy stuff for others. And they come back at the end of the day and their level of happiness is assessed. And of course, all the listeners I'm sure can guess which group by far is happier at the end of the day. By far. It's not like a, a minor statistical result. It's a whopping effect. People are happier when they're benefiting others. It's very clear. So what is the line here, though, between helping people sincerely and helping people because you know it's good for you? And how do we know whether we're on the right side of this selfish, unselfish line? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say that at the beginning, it doesn't matter. So that if you do something for someone else out of a selfish motive, that's okay you're still benefiting them. You know, there's a very famous psychologist by the name of Gordon Allport, and he had this concept called functional autonomy. And what this concept means is that you can engage in a behavior initially for one motive, and then it changes over time. 
Hmm. And we, we see this all the time. Often people do something because their friends are doing it, but then it takes on a life of its own and they begin to do it more out of their own intrinsic motivation. This is a case where I firmly believe that if a person started to do this for selfish reasons, that gradually over time, this would change because this is really part of our nature. You know, here the Dalai Lama, I think, is onto something. And again, scientific research shows that humans are born to be kind. They're born to be altruistic. And the data here are really clear. So that if you show, for example, a six-month-old infant a puppet interaction where the puppets are altruistic to one another and warm-hearted compared to selfish, and you ask which of these interactions do six-month-old babies prefer to look at, they clearly show a preference for the altruistic encounter. And again, it's not like 55% of the infants prefer the altruism and 45% prefer selfish. 100%, 100% of six-month-old infants prefer the altruistic. So there's no question. Intellectually, I buy all of this, but I'm going to be a little self-revelatory here and admit that these discussions of compassion often for me produce a kind of imposter syndrome because maybe a perverse impact of my mindfulness practice is I'm more keenly aware of my own selfish tendencies. And I sometimes fear that they may not be uprootable. Help me, Uncle Richie. Uh, well, first, let me say that I deeply appreciate and admire your honesty and your awareness. And having awareness of what's happening in your mind is really a necessary condition for any form of change. And so that's wonderful. And that should be celebrated. And I think that your experience, Dan, is super common. I think most of us, including me, have those experiences at times. And, you know, I think that it really is a commentary on the culture in which we live. Cross-cultural research shows that, for example, people who are raised in East Asian cultures don't have this same kind of individualistic tendency that we do. And so it seems quite clear that these are culturally acquired characteristics. So it does take a lot to uproot in a deep way these kinds of propensities that we have learned over time. And that's why we need to do these practices. I just want to add here in the name of clarity that the Dalai Lama does argue that you do need to be a little bit selfish in the traditional sense. Listen to that. Altruism uh, does not mean you completely forget your own interest. No. So we do need to look out for our own interests, which makes me feel a little bit better about my own ambition, I guess. And yet compassion, you know, focusing on other people has so many benefits, including physical benefits. In fact, during our interview, when the Dalai Lama mentioned these physical benefits, I gave him a compliment on how those benefits have manifested for him. So let's listen to that. You look good. Hmm? I said, you look good. Oh, yes. My physical now in a slight old age. 
Here, His Holiness takes off his robe, not all of it, just the kind of the top part, and uh, shows off his bod to the amusement of everybody in the room. <laughs> I really feel anger, really in destroyer of your health. More compassionate mind, really helpful, your physical health. It brings inner peace, peace of mind. Mm -hmm. Anger, very bad for our health. Peace of mind, compassion, really help to keep healthy body and nice smile. <laughs> and here, once again, he sticks out his tongue. Okay, I'm not sure there are dental benefits to compassion, but in terms of the rest of our physiology, Richie, what does the research say about developing our capacity for kindness, compassion, and altruism? There is a growing body of serious scientific evidence on the biological consequences of training compassion, and there are some really exciting findings. So probably the most health-relevant finding is that this kind of training seems to decrease inflammation and molecules that promote inflammation in the body. So there are these molecules that are called pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are molecules that play an important role in many chronic illnesses where inflammation is a significant accompaniment. These illnesses are varied. They can be cardiovascular illnesses, arthritic illnesses, asthma, just a whole variety of different chronic illnesses where inflammation plays a role. And compassion meditation seems to decrease inflammation, which will have very broad impact on a whole category of chronic illnesses that really exact a toll in our society. And so, you know, I think it's important for listeners to appreciate that compassion is not going to cure any illnesses. We're not saying that. But what compassion will do is it will change the symptom profile of illnesses. It will decrease the severity of illnesses and it will generally lead to better health. When you look at large-scale epidemiological research, that kind of research clearly shows that happier people are healthier, physically healthier. It doesn't mean, though, that this applies to everyone. There are certainly people who are happy and who have chronic illnesses. There are also people who are unhappy and who may be physically healthy. But this is kind of the law of averages. If you look at large populations, you see this general trend. And it invites the possibility that cultivating compassion and other qualities that are important for our well-being will actually have a beneficial effect on our physical health. Before we wrap up this episode, one last clip and this is a comment, a very short one from the Dalai Lama that I know struck you when we were in the room. So I want to play it to you and then hear on the backside why it struck you. At the time of my death, I meditate on altruism. So he said this many times throughout the course of the interview, but when you and I were chit-chatting right afterwards, 
you really singled that out as something that struck you. Why? You know, when a person is facing his or her death, there are innumerable things that they could be focusing on. And to be focusing on altruism is kind of remarkable. And what it says to me is that even in the last moment of his life, he is committed to focus on the welfare of others. And it just is inspiring to me to see the depth of his commitment. Agreed. Now you mentioned the D word, death. We're going to talk about life after death and claims of reincarnation and rebirth in tomorrow's episode. In the meantime, Richie, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you back here tomorrow. Wonderful. Thank you, Dan. In the Dalai Lama's view, there's actually a very deep connection between compassion and reincarnation. So how does this work exactly? And so, as I said, that is where we're heading in tomorrow's installment of the Dalai Lama's Guide to Happiness. We're going to dig into the mechanics of reincarnation with the Dalai Lama himself and hear some revealing comments, which he apparently has never made in public before, about the deity who he believes will play a crucial role in his own rebirth. And of course, I will ask Richie whether there's any evidence for this and uh, how those of us with Western scientific worldviews should process it all. What's the right intellectual stance when somebody so clearly brilliant, like the Dalai Lama, believes in something that you are not really sure about? And so when I hear all of this, I, you know, I have spent years cultivating what I call respectful not knowing and humility and uh, just sort of throw up my arms. <laughs> so that's coming up tomorrow. Before I let you go, though, I do want to say that if you are interested in starting to train your mind to give a shit about yourself and other people, again, uh, that's probably not the Dalai Lama's favorite verbiage, but nonetheless, we here at 10% Happier are launching a free meditation challenge called the Dalai Lama's Guide to Happiness. It will kick off over on the 10% Happier app on January 9th, but you can join right now. Here's how it works. Every day for 10 days, you'll get a short video featuring the Dalai Lama, Richie, and Roshi Joan, followed by a guided meditation to help you pound all of the lessons from that video and from this podcast into your neurons. So go check it out. 10% Happier is produced by DJ Kashmir, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. Our supervising producer is Marissa Schneiderman. Kimmy Regler, who I have to say has been the driving force behind this series and is amazing. Thank you, Kimmy. Kimmy is our managing producer and our executive producer is Jen Poyant. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with scoring, mixing, and sound design by the great Matt Boynton. And we had additional engineering by Peter Bonaventure. Nick Thorburn composed our theme. Check out his excellent band, Islands. And there are a lot of other folks I want to thank from uh, the wider TPH universe and beyond. They include Liz Levin, Jade Weston, Gemma Vardy, Connor Donahue. I also want to thank Richie Davidson and the whole team at Healthy Minds Innovations. As collaborators on this course, you can find out more about them in our show notes. 